21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Hi, I'm Kelly Fitzsimmons. I'm a serial technology entrepreneur who over the last 25 years has started six businesses in three different industries at the birth of those industries. I started in 96 in information security. I moved to voice interface in 2006 and uh, started most recently in virtual reality in 2012. Okay, are you self-destructive or creative or <laughs> what's, why? I mean, six different... That was mutually exclusive because... <laughs> no, no, definitely not. That's my experience, yeah. Both would be my answer. <laughs> yeah, it sounds familiar. <laughs> okay, uh, so basically we will discuss about the learning curve as well as your new book. And um, you told me it's a success Yes, you, yeah. you, you just launched it a few weeks ago. So what happened? So we launched on May 7th. And uh, right now, my publisher is very happy. We're over 200% of their goal for the book. Um, and we have hit uh, bestseller status in uh, four different categories, including startup on Amazon and uh, have 29 five-star reviews. Um, it's just, it's really, it's really amazing to see how receptive people have been to the book so far. It's a great achievement. And do you know why? I think it's a missing, I think it's a missing story. Uh, it's a missing category, if you will, in, in entrepreneurship. We have lots of books on success and roadmaps to success and these five steps. And if you just, you know, pay now for my mega millions training, you'll become successful too. But the hard conversation around startup failure and all startups are on the verge of going out of business. That's what they are until they figure out their business model. Uh, that's what I use to define a startup versus a business and a going concern is they are on the verge of being out of business at any minute. Uh, failure is always with us. And yet it's, it's not part of the larger media narrative around entrepreneurship. And so when people and entrepreneurs experience failure, they take it very personally and they think they're the only idiot out there. And the truth is all entrepreneurs fail at some point in our career. And usually we're failing, you know, in small ways with a, with a small case F daily as we're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And it's incredibly unhelpful when we take it personally because it can cause us to tap out of being an entrepreneur um, or, or worse. What keeps you up at night about entrepreneurship today? I'm really concerned for the health and well-being of entrepreneurs today. Um, there's more and more that are joining the ranks of entrepreneurship. It's become, in some ways, a fashionable thing to do. Um, it, but it's also the natural evolution of corporations downsizing and the globalization of things. And yet entrepreneurship, A, is not for everyone. Um, it's incredibly mentally taxing. Um, there's a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Um, and being able to manage that well is hard on anybody. But as I mentioned before, that UC Berkeley study about mental health and entrepreneurship really shook me. And it got me into conversations with other founders. And what I found just in conversation was that um, depression, anxiety, 
bipolar, ADHD. This isn't just a statistic. It's very, very real and tangible. And when entrepreneurs get in trouble with that type of profile, uh, suicidal ideation is not there far behind. And we are in the U.S. at a 50-year high in terms of the suicide rate. And we don't track statistics on entrepreneurs. We just don't. So we don't know how many of that is related to business failure. But in my conversations and over the course of the last two years and really in the thick of writing the book, what I discovered is it's not theoretical. This is very real and up for so many. And I know of two people that I'm connected with who, um, who passed away um, as a result of suicide um, in the last two years that were entrepreneurs and um, had conversations with over 16 others that are dealing with it right now. So I feel a sense of urgency of really starting this harder conversation. It's not the sexy rah-rah entrepreneurship conversation, but it's the reality of first making it well known that all successful entrepreneurs and all entrepreneurs period will struggle at some point with failure. And we tend to do this offline and hidden and that doesn't help anybody. So one of the reasons why I wrote the book, but, and wanted to start this conversation was because I genuinely believe it could save a life. So it's it's a story about failure, but it's it's more than a story about failure. Yeah. 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 I mean, so what my higher intention for the book was to create a conversation around what to do when we get into trouble, because it's inevitable. We're going to get in trouble at some point. And um, I personally have gotten into some significant trouble over the years. And so that provided the the narrative arc of the story. But I also am fortunate enough to have a lot of friends who are also successful entrepreneurs. And I got into conversation with them about those dark days. How did they make their way through it? What did they do differently coming out of it? And, and how, did they, how did they get there? How did they find their way during the really sticky and uncomfortable part of just being in the failure um, and not knowing what to do next? And so I felt like that was part of the conversation you just don't hear about enough um, in entrepreneurship. And yet it's something that we all experience, but because it's not part of our, our public narrative around our success trajectory as an entrepreneur, um, people think successful entrepreneurs just somehow magically had the mojo and the luck and the timing and everything perfect. And they don't see the, the struggle behind the scenes. And the struggle is what really, is what defines an entrepreneurial journey. It's 99% struggle and 1%, yay, I did it. Um, and that fades very, very fast. So that was the conversation I wanted to start and to really be a resource and a guide uh, to other entrepreneurs who are in that process of dealing with the shame and the self-doubt and the constant questioning and ruminating. Am I doing all that I can? Am I making bad decisions? what about me um, caused this to happen? And for those people who are asking those questions, that's who I wrote the book for. Mm -hmm. And finding not having enough of it is an important part of the successful startup as well. Yeah. And, and, and also failure, you know, failure is not well-defined. Um, 
in terms of what do we mean by that? So, so failure, for the most part, you'll hear things out of Silicon Valley like fail forward, fail fast, fail on somebody else's dime. And what they're talking about is really iteration, not failure. I mean, it's you try something, it doesn't work, you try something else. And if, you, and if nothing works, then you pivot. That's still not how I would define failure, but that word is used there. Um, it's just the scientific method. It's the process. We, we observe, we, we take note, we try something new. But when failure with a capital F happens, that's when we're shutting down the startup. It's clear that it won't work. It's run out of capital um, or it can't raise more capital. Uh, those are the really tough points where our identity has become so commingled with the idea of being an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur in this very specific way that that's when we get ourselves into real danger. Um, and part of the impetus behind me writing this book was um, a, a study that came out of UC Berkeley uh, back in 2015, I believe, in which uh, it was one of, it was a, well, it was a large sample size of entrepreneurs and they looked at what, you know, how were we doing in terms of our, our mental wellness? And what it found is that entrepreneurs are three times as likely as an average American to struggle with depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar disorder. Um, in short, we are special um, insofar as we are really differentiated um, and have these pre-existing conditions of which I have three out of those four. I have severe ADHD. I've struggled with anxiety, you know, since I was a kid and um, depression, particularly around the times in which my startups failed. And, and those underlying conditions when they're, when they're commingled with startup failure can be a recipe for disaster. So that was um, really my higher intention of writing this book was to be a lifeline for when we're dealing with capital F failure. And if we're making the mistake of seeing lowercase f, um, the everyday iteration type of failure, and we're collapsing that with our identity because that just chips away at our self-belief and sooner or later we're gonna get exhausted and we're gonna stop trying. Self-awareness is critical. It's everything. And almost all of us think that we're self-aware. And the problem is very few of us actually are. Um, I, you know, I was doing the research for the book, came across Tasha Yurik's work, um, and she did a three-year research project on self-awareness. And what she discovered was that 95% of us will say that we're self-aware but when she put it to criteria, what she discovered was that only 10 to 15% of us actually are. And so what's the big missing? Why is there such a huge delta there? And what she discovered, her hypothesis is that um, most of us are really good at sort of in our head thinking, how will we react to a given scenario? We know ourselves well in terms of how likely we are to respond to something, but that isn't the full picture of self-awareness. Self-awareness requires triangulation. It requires that we be open to feedback of others. 
and not just listening to it, but really actively engaging in it in such a way that we're learning from it constantly. And if you think about um, how bad most people give feedback, (laughs) it's usually when they're irritated or angry. A lot of us, uh, myself very much included, shut down. Um, We don't want to hear that bad news. And as entrepreneurs, we're worried about losing our self-belief and or our mojo. And too much negative feedback can really chide away at both of those for at least, you know, that has been my experience up until now. Um, It takes a deep level of emotional awareness and maturity to be able to see that as maybe the feedback is mostly for them, but there's some gold in there for me. Um, or being able to listen to it fully and be, wow, that's a totally different perspective and being able to have the mental agility and flexibility to bring in that information with it, without it harming our self-belief and really using it as fodder for learning. That's a pretty advanced skill. As I think a lot of us, I know this is true for me, walk around with a mindset or a story that others' words can harm and diminish us. Um, So if someone says something really particularly ugly to us, we're likely to get pretty upset about it. Um, And when we're out and raising money and trying to get our startups off the ground, we really need to land positive and full of confidence. And so there's this weird paradox where the information we desperately need can only come from others and their perspective on us and our actions. And yet we're really reticent to not receive it when we're out there in the world trying to get our startups off the ground because we're scared that it will, will just, will, will go off the rails. And, um, and that's the paradox of, of entrepreneurship. When do you listen and when do you not listen? And, um, and how can you be self-aware if you're not listening? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you were in a phase of ego trip as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, absolutely. I think all of us go, um, at some point, you have to have a bit of delusion of grandeur to go off and say, I'm going to create something absolutely new, whether it's a business or a market, and I'm in the market creation business, which is really delusional. Um, You know, when I started information security in 96, there was people that were in very large businesses. One of my mentors um, was the CEO of Fiserv, which at that time was doing the back-end transactions for over 10,000 banks. And um, he looked me in the eye and he said, Kelly, you're so smart. You're so talented. Why in the hell are you selling something that nobody wants? And that was information security. And I'm thinking in banking, you'd think that was kind of important, but it hadn't gotten there yet. The understanding, the market wasn't there yet. So that's the place where I play. And um, it's maddeningly difficult because you don't know if the market's going to actually mature in a timeline that will allow your business to succeed. And you don't even know if the market's going to realize at all. Um, And so there's a lot of places where our egos can really trip us up um, and keep us from hearing the, the, the hard information that we need to. In that particular case with George, I needed to ignore his advice. That was not something I needed to listen to because I could see a bigger picture. And he was very much in a, in a set mindset around how business was done that didn't fully appreciate what 
the interactivity and the internet brought to this new world of online banking. He just hadn't gotten there yet. So I was in that particular case, like George, which I said, you know, you're wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong. And um, he ended up joining my board and was very much part of the success of that, that particular company with his guidance. But in the beginning, he really didn't get it. Other times, um, customers will say things to us like, I love this idea, but I'd never buy it. And in one particular case, that was a very helpful piece of feedback that I chose to ignore because I had the previous example of George. Um, and in that particular case, he was 100% right. No one was going to buy it. <laughs> and he was my most likely customer. Um, so oftentimes our ego of like, particularly early on, if we have success and we've, been, we've proved others wrong, we can get into this like master of the universe kind of thinking where we think we know more than the market does. And that's deadly. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Spread the word by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Okay. So we have, let's say, ego defense versus self-awareness, but context awareness as well. Yes. We have prejudice versus mm -hmm. self self belief as well mm -hmm. and sometimes maybe i don't know if i'm in ego trip if you know so if i understood you well uh during reading your book there are there are some tools and one of the tool is the decision metrics yeah so i developed this uh for me uh in my 40s and so I had, you know, most of my career, five businesses behind me by the time I figured out and woke up to the reality that decision-making is everything and the quality of our decisions dictate our success. And um, it's the only thing that we have control of because the other part of the equation is just random luck. And so few of us have ever been trained or have any idea that decision-making is a science. Um, I certainly hadn't. I'd read the work of Daniel Kahneman. I'd read Thinking Fast and Slow. But for whatever reason, it hadn't clicked with me yet that there was a real process that we have to go through to check our biases. Um, our brains are just this sticky, hot mess of heuristics that are really working against us most of the time. And the ego is just one piece of that. Um, some of the big ones for entrepreneurs, confirmation bias, optimism bias. We, you know, we struggle hindsight bias. And it was hindsight bias that actually got me to create the decision matrix. The hind hindsight bias is basically the delusion that all of our decisions are good ones based on the outcome. Um, if the outcome is good, well, we, had a, we made a good decision. And that is not true. Um, a good decision is the product of a good process, that we really thought things through. We have no control over the outcome because the outcome is such a complex set of variables. It's really up to randomness to decide whether or not the outcome is good. But we have full control over whether or not the decision that we reached 
you know, went through a good process. So the decision matrix basically is a series of questions that I go through whenever I have to make a decision. And I then log it um, so that I can review it in 60, 90, 180 days to see how did that decision turn out? Was there things that I didn't consider? Were there perspectives that I missed? Um, And that, that logging of my of my decisions came from Daniel Kahneman. He had a blog post that I just tripped across and talking about how he logged his decisions to, you know, to compensate for hindsight bias. And that was when the light bulb went off for me of like, oh my gosh, I really don't have a process for making decisions. I mean, I had the pro and con list. I had to go with my gut. I would, you know, occasionally very rarely talk to other people. Um, And I needed to flip that. I needed to get in conversation with a lot of people around hard decisions, particularly people who are, had nothing at stake with whether or not that decision was a yes or a no. Um, I needed to really check my emotional state. Um, if I was feeling any level of fear, which so often we are in entrepreneurship, we can feel that survival place that we can get into it limits our ability to see options. We have no optionality. It's fight, flight, fight. You know, it's very rudimentary thinking and none of us is above that. So part of what I learned to do is to handle the emotions first through journaling, through writing things out, coming back at it, finding a moment where I was feeling more peaceful than not, getting into conversations with others so they could work through the sticky interpersonal stuff. Um, so that when I came back to make the decision, I knew I was as clear-headed as possible, which is really the crux of it. Um, most of us will make decisions in a rush. Um, we'll go with our gut. We'll feel this tyranny of the urgent, um, which is very pervasive in startup culture. And all of those things work against us. With tyranny of the urgent specifically, where we feel like we're so rushed to make this decision, there's an entire cl- class a category of cognitive biases dedicated to making decisions in a hurry. <laughs> so it's really destructive. Um, and it doesn't mean that you, you know, you have to find a month to sit on a mountaintop, but really structuring 24 to 48 hours of clear thinking time, um, figuring out how to hand things off so that you can get out of the office and away from those stressors, turn off the email, turn off the messaging start writing, start journaling, start getting in conversation without taking the time and protected cognitive time to make a good decision. The answer is we're almost never making a good decision. We might get lucky. It might turn out well, but that's luck. That's not, that's not decisioning. Mm-hmm. Basically, most of people think communication is a, is a process between A and, and B. Mm-hmm. But it is our inner communication as well, isn't it? With, right. with feedback loops and... Well, you're communicating with yourself, but the most important question in the decision matrix is, have you gotten in, in contact and talked this through with trusted friends? Mm-hmm. Um, because the smarter we are, the more likely we fall prey to confirmation bias, which is that really weird and super tricky bias where we only see the information we want to see that confirms our, over, you know, our previously held convictions. This is deadly in product market fit because you're going to only hear from the customers that are telling you the things that you want to hear. You're going to skim over the customers that I love it, but I'll never buy it. Um, 
And so confirmation bias is really tricky because as I said, the smarter you are, the more likely you are to fall prey to it and think that you can overcome this bias in your head. So, so many of us would much rather not talk about these sticky problems because oftentimes the root cause of that decision that we are being forced to make can be traced back to a, a mistake we made in the past. So getting into conversation with somebody else, it's not going to make us look very good when we admit the facts of the situation. And that reticence to not show our bad side, to not show our shadow or our mistakes is what really gets us into trouble and compounds it because you can't actually counteract confirmation bias within your own head. You need somebody else with a different perspective to help shift things. And too often we try to go it alone. And that's a very American cowboy sort of metaphor of that's leadership. You know, you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you make the hard decision and you you just can't, you can't do a good job of that because of the biases in our head. You can't do it without somebody else getting into conversation with us and having the willingness to make ourselves look bad so that we can get at to what actually is going on and how can we do it differently going forward. Did you realize how hard it was for, for, for both of us to learn what the context actually is? I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Context is 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 really hard. Um, I, I'll give a good example of this. So, in information security, my buyer was mostly engineers, people who had been working in IT and had come up through the ranks and had gotten into senior leadership, where they were the CTO, CIO, or later the CSO's chief security or privacy officer. And so, those were my clients. Those were the people I worked with. And because they came up through engineering, the context was really clean. Um, Yes and no was binary. If they said yes, they were going to do it. They would want to work with us. If they said no, that was code for do not ever call me again. (laughs) And and if you did, it was a real mistake. I mean, you just never would, you know, keep calling on those on that particular personality type. It was a, it was disastrous. So um, I learned in, over a decade being in information security how to work within that context, right? So my next industry turned out to be in human resources. And this is a totally different personality type that is brought into the world mm-hmm. of HR. Mm-hmm. Um, People in HR are much more nuanced in terms of how they say yes, because a lot of times they might get into situations where um, it sounds like they're saying yes, but they're really saying no. And um, they're people people. And a lot of times there's a lot of people pleasing. And so it's all about being very nice and and, and open and respectful. Um, but getting a clear no in the HR context is not easy. Um, because it can be seen as um, conflict. So, so I went in with a listening from context number one. A no means no, yes means yes. I go into HR and I proceed at one client to have 176 meetings. It took over seven years of this conversation, meeting with multiple teams when we had been told that they were going to buy. I'm telling my investors 
it's a go. I'm telling my team, it's a go. I'm going to all of these meetings and I keep hearing the same thing. Yes, 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 yes. And I keep thinking, okay, this is the meeting where everything starts. So my husband slash business partner put a poster on the wall in which we started collecting tick marks for every time we went over to that client's you know, headquarters. And at the end, we ended up getting a contract that was more of a hunting license than a actual contract to buy. So we had to then, uh, after we got the contract, keep selling, you know, to every individual manager. And it was exhausting. And, um, and I didn't catch it because I was listening from the wrong context. Finally, I hired a COO, Ann Ohm, who was really gifted in her listening, went, took her to a meeting, and she said, what did you hear in that last meeting? And I said, they said, yes, we're going forward. And she said, oh, no, they're saying, no, this is never going to happen. <laughs> and I'm like, how, how, can, how can that be when their words are yes, yes, yes? And she said, you're not thinking about the context and who these people are. And it was a major light bulb went off in my head. And I, and I couldn't believe how my confirmation bias, my desire to hear what I wanted to hear was acting. And also my lack of nuance around context had really set me up to fail. Um, I, was chasing an, I was chasing a whale that would make our, or break our business and I was breaking the business very, very slowly by overemphasizing the amount of time I was spending there because I thought they were all saying yes. But it was a smokescreen. It was a smokescreen. It was a smokescreen. I mean, I think they were genuinely well-intentioned, but it was, it, I just didn't have the right listening for that culture. Um, every industry has a culture and people that are drawn to it. And when you're of that culture, you can hear it better. Um, and I wasn't of the HR culture. I didn't grow up in HR. I didn't have any, you know, I don't have a lot of friends who are in HR. I have no ability to really listen into how they hear things. So that is, I think, one of the invisible uh, sand pits, if you will, in which we can get stuck um, and fail because we don't have the right contextual listening. Right listening sounds like something we all need to learn. It's so, a self check. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, do you really know these people? <laughs> you know, is this, mm -hmm. are, are these, is this your tribe? Um, I didn't fit well into information security from a personality standpoint. Um, but because my listening was so different, um, I could see the differences and I didn't assume that I knew how, what they were talking about. So I really paid attention. And, and quite frankly, the rule set of listening in InfoSec was pretty straightforward. Yes means yes, no means no. Okay, got it. The HR context, again, that's not my frame, um, but I thought I knew what I was listening to. I didn't. Um, moving to virtual reality, I'm in now a third frame of listening, but at least the lights are on. Um, at least I, I ask better questions. I don't assume that I know. I repeat back what I'm hearing. I take collaborative notes so they can see the notes that I'm taking to make sure that I'm hearing it correctly. Um, so I'll just pull up a Google Doc, start you know, running notes and keep, keep going back and forth. And, and it's been really helpful to check my listening. 
so that if I mishear something, they're like, oh, oh, wait, that's not what I meant there. Um, But again, my listening isn't necessarily of this industry either, um, because all of my industries have been technology-based, but the people that I sell to are dramatically different. You told us about right, uh, right listening, and you 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 shared with us uh, some of your techniques. You, you told us about the decision matrix, but your book, uh, your concept is much more. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So, at a at a high level, the whole book is written and structured as a field guide. It's as if you're going off into the wild lands of Alaska, and you need to figure out your way through it, and the the core premise is that there is no roadmap to success. Everyone's roadmap to success is highly individualistic. And when entrepreneurs write from that space of here is my, you know, three-step process and you'll, you know, in the mega millions training, we get, we think that you can reproduce somebody else's success. And the answer is no, you can't because it's in the rear view mirror what made that person successful was a combination of their unique abilities, strengths, and the timing of the market. And that is now all in the rearview mirror with the exception of those strengths, which you, which it may overlap perfectly with yours, but for the most part, these are highly individual. So the real key, I believe, is to learn fast from failure because failure is always with us. It is a steadfast guide. And there's so many places that we get stuck And it's not unique to any of us. We all visit these dreaded wastelands again and again and again. And eventually, we might learn to sort of skirt around them, but it doesn't mean that we don't fall into them repeatedly. And to give some examples, so one of the things that I talk a lot about is focus. And, you know, how do you focus in the center of a storm? And it feels like that on a day-to-day basis for most startups, how, you know, how do you get that attention and that focus? Um, and a lot of it really has to do with changing some core behaviors. Um, right now in startup culture, you'll see a lot of people who are disregarding their health, what they eat, what they drink, they party hard, they play hard, and they do it all in the service of like the culture, the sort of that's how you do it in startups. And, and, And while you can sort of get away with that in your 20s, by your 30s, this starts to fall apart. Um, I personally stopped drinking when I was 31 because it was just taking so much away from me. Um, I couldn't recover fast enough. I was groggy. I was sick. I was And it it is too much noise, isn't it? It's just too much noise. You just can't do it. And and the shit that you say (laughs) when you're drunk can come back to haunt you. Absolutely. Um, So why do you need, you know, to create and set more fires than you already have. Um, so, so when my first, my second business, it was my second business prism failed. Um, I had to get sober pretty quick because if I just drank my way through it, I would never have been able to rebound, but that is one of the traps that we get stuck into. Addiction is a huge part of the problem in startup landia. Um, we will hear anecdotal stories about, you know, executives and, and whatnot, but I've lived it. I've seen it up 
close. Um, almost everybody uses something to pad the edges. Um, alcohol is very common, but there's a ton of sex addiction. There is a common exercise addiction. Um, I mean, 10% of, of elite athletes actually are dealing with an addiction to exercise. So things that we might hold as, as good in our society, like we say, alcoholism, bad, exercise addiction, good. Um, but they are all equally bad because it, when it's an addiction, it's actually eroding your relationships. It's hurting you and your social connectedness. Um, and the most nefarious one of them all is work addiction. And in startup culture, work addiction is considered table stakes. You will devote everything to this. You will take out all your relationships, um, your health, everything gets sacrificed on the altar of the startup. And it's madness. Um, you're not capable of making good decisions if you're not eating well. You're not capable of making good decisions if you're you know, hungover or drunk at the time. You're not capable of making good decisions if your social connectedness is so rotten that you're unable or unable or unwilling to talk to others about your mistakes and and help triangulate your decisions. So all of this is kind of the, um, the poor culture that we have in startups today that is really detrimental to the founders, to the employees, and ultimately to the success of the company. So that was the real frame of creating this field guide, if you will, to how to handle the terrain, particularly the hazards in the terrain, you will find yourself there again and again and again. It's not like once I got sober that, yo, oh, I'm all fixed. Um, I have a highly addictive personality. I cross addicted right into work and had my health fail because of it. Um, we will keep visiting these, these terrains again and again. The question is, can you catch yourself fast enough and, and navigate out again? Um, that's, that's where success lies because while your competitors are, you know, drinking themselves half to death or, or, you know, working themselves to the detriment of their family and end up in a divorce or, or, you know, dying at their desk, you can be more successful by managing your health, taking care of your family, taking care of those intimate relationships and ensuring that your startup is based on a foundation of good decisioning because you're in a good place to make decisions. Does that make sense? Kelly, this is amazing. Not, not only makes sense, I want to learn more. What can I do? <laughs> so I have a website, lostinstartuplandia.com. Uh, there you can join um, the mailing list, start the conversation with me about what you're going through. I'm really curious about what other founders and entrepreneurs are struggling with. Um, I'm also, my book is on Amazon right now. Uh, so Lost in Startuplandia, Wayfinding for the Weary Entrepreneur. Uh, and... There's, we've got Kindle and, and physical copies, so that's what's out there right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes.